Father, we come to you in this moment so thankful because you are so good. And Lord, there's so much going on in the many ways in which we see you moving and we thank you even for your very presence here this morning. And Lord, we thank you for Living Water Church. Pray your blessings on them. Lord, would you bless their pastor and their lay leadership and would you guide them and revive them in so many powerful and beautiful ways that they may reach the Lexington area. And Lord, now would you speak to us Lord, as we open your word, we come with expectant hearts asking that you would speak in powerful ways to each of us individually, but also to us as a church. So Lord, may we hear the words of your son this morning. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said, amen. Have you ever tried to get someone's attention? We spend much of life trying to get someone's attention, don't we? Wives trying to get the husband's attention. Husbands trying to get the wives' attention. Parents trying to get their kids' attention. Can I get an amen from any parents in the room? Yes? Students raising their hand trying to get their teachers' attention. Teachers raising their voices trying to get their students' attention. Right? We spend a lot of time of life, if you really think about it, trying to get someone's attention. That's exactly what Jesus does on this day. Jesus is walking along. The crowd behind him is growing as he's on his way to Jerusalem, as we've been seeing as we're going through the Gospel of Luke. And boy, does Jesus get their attention. Jesus has been doing this in many ways. He's been teaching. He's been proclaiming the gospel. He's been challenging the people. He's been teaching in parables. He'll tell exaggerated stories and illustrations in order to communicate a foundational truth. Uh, But on this day, Jesus, well, his words are very matter of fact. And I believe that he does not blink whenever he delivers them to the crowd. In Luke 14, starting in verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Now notice right there that the Luke writer, uh, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke says that great crowds accompany him. As we've been reading through the Gospel of Luke, we see the crowds mentioned, but now all of a sudden it's great Again, the crowd is growing around Jesus as he's going to Jerusalem. So Jesus, in this moment, when the crowd is great, he decides to turn to face them and to say something to them. Now listen, he could have left them alone, right? He could have just left the crowd alone. He could have walked into Jerusalem with a caravan of people showing, saying, look how much support I have. He could have not said anything to them. But Jesus just has a real hard time doing that. Because Jesus loves to push us. He loves to challenge us. He loves to push us and make us better. He loves to help us understand fully what it means to really be a follower of his. And he loves to push us, especially when we lack some foundational truth or fundamental aspect of what it means to actually being a follower of his. And so Jesus on this day, great crowds are there. He turns to them and says, his first statement, verse 26, if anyone comes after me and does not hate, now that's a strong word, does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Now that is a strong statement. Even at the most casual reading of that, there's something that kind of strikes us as odd about it. But notice that Jesus says that unless you hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even your own life, you cannot, notice the word cannot. He didn't say that the exceptional Christians are going to live this way. He didn't say that the Navy SEALs of Christianity are going to live this way. He didn't say that the mature ones are going to live this way. He simply says, you actually cannot be my disciple unless this is the case. And boy, these are the verses we'd rather just read right over and quickly, right? But notice what Jesus is doing here. A couple of things. Number one, again, he's pulling from Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 8. And we've looked at that as we've gone through this study in the Gospel of Luke. And in Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 8, he's, uh, Moses is speaking to the people about if your brother, your mother, your father, or someone in your family, someone that you love, your wife, whoever it may be, a son or daughter, tries to entice you and pull you away saying, let's go after other gods that are not Yahweh. He says, you are to have nothing to do with him. You're not to yield to him or listen to him. And so what Jesus is saying is echoing the words that had been written centuries before in Deuteronomy. And the ideal picture that we see that God lays out throughout human history is this picture of everybody in the family saying to everybody else in the family that we must keep God in the place of supremacy. We must keep God in the place of preeminence. And if everybody in the family is doing that, keeping God in the place of preeminence, then there's no competition among the family members about who's first or who's in charge and those type of things. Now, what Jesus is doing here, though, because you, you, you may read it and say, well, still, this, Chris, this sounds very unrealistic. I don't even know if I like it very much. But what Jesus is doing here is pointing to the fact that he is the only one who can ask for such loyalty like this. In doing this, yes, he's pulling on the Old Testament commands. Yes, absolutely. But he puts it in very frank, blunt language. But we have to remember the one who is speaking the words. Because again, Jesus is the only one. If he is who he says he is, if he is who scriptures say that he is, if the testimony about him is true, then Jesus is the only one who could possibly hold the place of supremacy or preeminence in our life. If he really is who he says he is. He's the only one who could demand this of the people, any people, even me, even you. This is why I go back and I read Colossians 1, 15 through 20 over and over again. Colossians 1, 15 says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He's the only one that can do that. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, even resurrection. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's the only one that can do that. No one else can make this kind of claim. And because no one else is who Jesus is and has done what Jesus has done, 
No one else can call out to the crowd and say, your love, your love for me makes your love for everything else look like hate. What Jesus is doing here is using a very common linguistic argument that you would see in the first century. We don't use this type of language, but we see it throughout the first century. And he's using the word hate. That's the one that trips us up, right? And what Jesus is saying is hate by comparison, meaning that your love for God, your love for God has to be above all else and above all others. And that's what Jesus is calling for in me and in you and in the first people who heard this come out of his mouth. And I'm sure the crowd was a little stunned, just as we are a little shocked when we read such words. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The second statement that he makes is in verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot, he uses the same word, cannot be my disciple. And you think, wow, Jesus is really not into church growth, right? But once again, he's making this emphatic statement. You cannot be my disciple unless you bear your own cross and you come after me. Now, the people listening to Jesus on this day were very aware of what it looked like for someone to have the cross beam of a cross placed on their back and then led out to a place of crucifixion by a group of Roman soldiers. They all had that picture burned in their mind. They had seen it before. They had seen someone who had received a sentence of death have to place the crossbeam on their shoulders just like Jesus will have to do not too long from this very text and to walk out in shame of past people while people jeered at you and spit at you, all that stuff, all the way to being nailed or hung on a cross, all the while Roman soldiers with whips in their hand urging you along. They all knew what that looked like. So when Jesus says, you must bear your own cross, I'm sure there wasn't a whole lot of, could you please explain that for me in the crowd? Now, yes, it is true. This has a spiritual meaning for us. It does. There's a very real spiritual meaning that Jesus has here, the cross and the path that we are to walk every day is the self-denial that we exercise through the crucifixion of the flesh. Absolutely. It was Paul who said, I crucify my flesh daily. I have to die to myself every single day that I may live fully for Christ. It was, it was uh, Paul who said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, meaning in this earthly body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Why? Who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, yes, there is a very real spiritual application that you and I can apply every single day. Every single day, we have to crucify the flesh. We have to have self-denial through crucifying our sinful nature so that we can fully submit ourselves to him. True. Very true. And it's hard. It is hard because we're in a spiritual battle. But we have to remember, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. While this has a spiritual application to it, 
very practical application for everyday life. This also has a very real physical meaning as well. We need to not forget that Christianity has been a persecuted religion from the day it was started. Not only do we worship a persecuted and crucified Savior, not only that, the very first followers of this Savior gave their lives for the gospel, and people have been doing it ever since. Ever since. Anyone who does not see that Christianity from day one has been a persecuted religion knows, has zero understanding about human history. Zero understanding. And they have zero understanding about modern events. You know that just this past Sunday, six Christians were killed in Nigeria. Why? For being a Christian. That makes 37 in the last three weeks that we know about. Just that we know about. Christians right now, while we're sitting in this climate-controlled room, are leaving Pakistan in droves as much as they can. Why? Because they're persecuted. Right now, there's an army vet in the UK who is facing prosecution uh, because he was praying outside of an abortion clinic. Right now in Indonesia, the churches are in an uproar and are being devastated simply because they're Christians. Over 400 acts of violence have been committed against Christians in India in the first half of this year alone. Why? Because Christianity from its beginning has been a persecuted religion. And Jesus made it very clear that it was going to be this way. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, yes, there is a spiritual application. But listen, my friends, there's also a very real physical application to our faith. And people are experiencing it all around the world. And when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, come after me, the people who he's talking to on this day completely understood that that meant laying down their lives, every bit of it, in order to follow him. And there are Christians all around the world who understand this to this day. And yet in the American church, we have people who show up to a service, and if they don't like the music, the aesthetics, or the temperature, they turn around and walk out, and we wonder what's going wrong with the American church. Say it ain't so. It's happening everywhere. It's as if in the American church, we've sold out to the almighty personal preference instead of the savior of the world. While people all around the world read these verses that we're reading and they understand what this means. The call that Jesus gives to us is a calling that involves a cross. And we very well may have to carry the physical one. Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 28. He says, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, first image here, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. First illustration is that of building a tower. Second illustration, verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the others are yet a great way off, he will send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. 
Now, there's a very clear meaning here that Jesus is giving us. He's telling us to think long and to think hard and to think carefully to understand what it means to be his disciple, count the cost, to understand what it will cost you to be a disciple before you say you are one. Yes, he's telling the crowd, don't assume, you know what this means, make sure you think through what it means to carry the label, the title disciple. Think through that before you say you are one. But notice Jesus' two illustrations. Notice that both illustrations do not end well. The man who's trying to build the tower, notice the tower does not get built. The king who's going out to meet the other king in a war, notice he sends a delegation for terms of peace. While Jesus is challenging the crowd, talking about what it means to come after him, he gives these two illustrations, and at the end of both illustrations, there's the expectation of failure. It's as if Jesus is asking the crowd on this day, do you want to build your tower? Do you want to fight your own battles? Hasn't humanity already tried that? Think about a famous tower in Scripture. Think to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. Remember Genesis 11:4? The people came together and said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Jesus says, you really want to build a tower with your name on it? What, what about this idea of tens of thousands being at war? Deuteronomy 32, 30. How could one have chased a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight unless the rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? He's saying, how does anyone win a battle? with a small number against a bigger number unless God intervenes and does something and fights on their behalf. He says it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. What Jesus is saying is, yes, you must think long, you must think hard about being my disciples because it will cost you. It will cost you trying to build your tower, make your name great. It'll cost you trying to succeed in your battles in your own strength. It's gonna cost you all that. And that's why he makes the next, very next statement, verse 33. So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. The word renounce is a very good word. It means literally to give up. To renounce all he has. You could, so you could read, therefore, anyone who just does not give up Give up all that he has, all that he thinks that he is going to accomplish in his own strength. You've got to give all that up. And if not, you cannot be my disciple. And when we hear that, that just grades against our thinking so many times. We think we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we forgot who created the bootstraps. Right? 
And we say, why can't I? Why can't I? Why, why do I have to give up? Why can't I try to build my life as high as I want to build it? Why can't I try to seek success at all costs? And why can't I build a tower and put my name on it? Why can't I go into battle? Surely I can win. And Jesus is looking at the crowd going, you're not going to. That's the problem. You'll never build the tower big enough. You'll never get it built. Remember Psalm 127 verse 1? Unless the Lord builds the house, the people who labor, labor in vain. He says, you're never going to succeed in your battles in life. You're never going to be able to defeat the armies that come after you. Remember Psalm 127 verse 1, the second part of the verse? Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. And what Jesus is communicating on this day is, yes, count the cost, absolutely. But count the cost because you can't build the tower. It's going to fail. You can't fight all the battles. You are going to fail. But to be my disciple is to be totally dependent upon me for every single thing. To say what the psalmist said in Psalm 61 verse 3 when he says, You, God, have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. When we come to that place where we live life in such a way that we say, I can't do it. I can't build it on my own. I can't fight the battles on my own, but he can, he can, and he will on my behalf. My job is to give up, to give him everything. And then notice in verse 34, Jesus brings up salt again. And he says salt is good, doesn't he? Oh, salt is good. But if salt loses its taste, how shall the, its saltiness be restored? Verse 35, it is of no use to either the soil or even a manure pile. That was Jesus being funny. He says, it is thrown away. Now again, when Jesus brings up this salt, we think back to Numbers 18, 19. We think about the salt covenant. We think about a part of the salt covenant is the promise of provision. And here when Jesus is talking about losing his saltiness, he's not necessarily talking about losing your salvation or something like that. But what he is talking about is losing God's providing hand on your life, on your journey. And what Jesus is saying is you can't build it, you can't overcome it, you can't fix it, you can't heal it, you can't mend it, you cannot succeed in it, but I can that's why when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, the implication is, but with me, you can do everything. It's possible with me. But again, you can't build the tower and you won't win the battle without him. And so what it means to give up is to give him all. Give him all of that, all the ambition all the struggles, all the battles that you're going to face, your whole life, what Jesus asked for is everything. You know when I say the word everything, you, you, you know what that word means? Everything. Do you know what the word everything means in Hebrew? Everything. You know what it means in Greek and Latin? Everything. And that's exactly what Jesus is asking for. He says, I want it all. Even all that stuff that you're worried about right now, I want every bit of it. And that's when we come to that point in our life when we can say, God, your way, your way, your way. And we say your way because it's the only way. You're never gonna build the tower. You're never gonna defeat the armies. You're not gonna win the battles. But he can. But he can.
I was thinking this week of the quote from Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott gave his life on the mission field, literally. Was killed by the people he was going to reach. And Jim Elliott, as a young man, wrote these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, meaning the things of this world, to gain what he cannot lose, the things of the next. As Jesus says this to the people on this day, really challenging them, telling them what it means to be a disciple, he ends with this line, he who has ears, let him hear. That's Jesus' way of saying, hearing to receive and put into action is a choice. And the question that's lingering in the air as Jesus then turns back around eventually and walks off, the question that's lingering in the air is, will you follow now? That's the question the crowd was facing. I think that's the question we are facing. Will you follow now? Now that you know this, will you follow now? Or, or do you believe that following him could potentially cost you too much? Is the cost too high? And I think that's, again, our question. As we read the words of Jesus and we receive it in all of its bluntness, as it's grounded in reality, and not us just kind of making an allegory out of it somehow, but as we receive the words of Jesus, the question is, will we follow now? Or do we feel like it could potentially cost us too much? He is no fool, no fool, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That, Jim Elliot says, it's not a foolish way to live. It's the only way to live. Amen. Father, would you help us as we continue to ponder these weighty words that Jesus spoke so long ago that speak to us now? Lord, I pray that as we hear them, that we would truly receive them and at least wrestle with what does this mean for our lives. And Lord, I'm struck by the fact this morning that you have given us one life to live. We have this one shot that prepares us for an eternity somewhere. And so Lord, I pray that we would take the Savior's words seriously this morning. That we, would, that we would let them confront our own ideas about what it means to be a disciple. And Lord, at the end of the day, may we be found faithful 
May we be willing to lay down what we cannot keep, to gain that which we cannot lose, and find ourselves building our life on you and you alone. Lord, let it be so. Let it be so. Church, would you please stand and respond with us?
scripture this week about a story that the Lord told. See, there's these two people. They were building houses, and one dug deep, and he built his foundation on the rock, and one didn't. And you know, digging deep, right before Jesus told that story, he said, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I've told you to do? It's our obedience, little acts of obedience and big acts of obedience. They dig us deep, it's like carrying our cross. You know, as a parent, I know that there's two different ways that my children can disobey. They can do what I tell them not to do. But they can also not do what I've told them to do. And I think a lot of times that comes out of fear in our Christian walk. Maybe the Lord has told us to do something and it's scary to us. But friend, you do not have to be afraid. Because he is with you always. And if he calls you to it, he'll equip you for it. So dig deep. Whether it's starting to lead that small group the Lord's been tugging on your heart to lead, maybe it's witnessing to your neighbor or your coworker and sharing the hope of Christ, whatever it is, dig that foundation deep because there might be a tower you need to build or a battle you need to wage and your foundation needs to be on the rock and you need to build it day in, day out, choosing to obey the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your spirit. Truly, there is nothing we want more than to abide with you and dwell with you, to learn from you and to be more like you. You and you alone are our treasure. Knowing you more is our great reward. So Father, would you strengthen us that our love might be sincere, that our foundation might be firm and that we might be a hope to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in peace.